Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, thank you, Diane. Uh, We were together at a statewide event recently, and uh, she told me about these luncheons and uh, asked if I would ever be available to come. I said, absolutely, let's plan it now. And uh, thank you for following through on that. Thank you all, brothers and sisters, for what you do uh, for Florida and for our country uh, and for the Republican Party, especially those of you that serve in elected office. Special thanks to you and for all of you that work so hard, whether on the scenes or behind the scenes, you're needed more than ever. You know that as well as I do. You are appreciated more than ever uh, by people all around this country. Uh, Our local battles, no matter how local they are, are more and more national battles and essential for the survival of our country. And I want to speak to you a little bit about that here uh, today by way of encouragement. I travel the country, as Diane just uh, told you, uh, full-time. I've been doing so for 30 years. And working on the national level against abortion necessarily brings me deeply into our national political battles. And never before, and and I think you probably um, can say the same thing, never before have I heard more of our fellow citizens, political commentators, conservative leaders, including people who might not necessarily be talking about religious and spiritual things most of the time, but never have I heard more of them say that the divide and the battles right now, the political divide in our nation, the cultural battles we have, are manifestations of a spiritual battle. That the different divisions, the, the really the warfare that we are involved in, is a simply a war, not simply between Republican and Democrat, conservative or, or liberal, left or right. It is a war between good and evil. It is a battle between common sense and insanity. This is the moment at which we have arrived. When we can't say, when a Supreme Court nominee can't say, whether a woman is a woman or a man is a man, we have reached an insane moment. And when that ideology is imposed on our children, when they are indoctrinated, when they should be learning about mathematics and instead they're learning about how a man can become a woman and vice versa, and then they are physically mutilated in the effort to pursue that fantasy, well then this is just pure evil. And brothers and sisters, more and more people are waking up about that. And also waking up, by the way, between the connection between this insanity and an insanity that we have been living through for five five decades here in America. Because, as I always say, maybe we've arrived at the point where we can't say a man is a man or a woman is a woman because for 50 years we've been saying a baby's not a baby. 
Think about that for a moment. In 1973, Roe v. Wade, which fortunately now has been reversed by the Supreme Court, literally said that we don't know when human life begins. Maybe today we have a Supreme Court justice who doesn't know what a woman is, because for 50 years the Supreme Court has claimed not to know what a human being is. Is not that a denial of reality? Is not the same evidence, the same biological, genetic evidence, that you are either male or female, and that there is no third option, isn't that the same biological and genetic evidence that tells us that the baby in the womb is in fact a human baby? A unique being from fertilization? It's the same science. And to deny it is the same lie. Brothers and sisters, we don't just have a situation where people are missing this truth or not believing it. It is worse than that. We have a situation in America where people are systematically attacking the truth. Systematically planning and executing a demolishing of the truth. And that's where there is no more room for neutrality. Either in American life in general, or in the church, or anywhere else. What do I mean? There used to be a time where people who differed across the political aisle were pursuing the same ultimate goals believed in the same common truths, cherished the same common values, loved the same country. It is not that way anymore. There used to be a political competition in this country whereby a Republican would say, stand up and say, well, I want to pursue this particular policy. If I'm elected, here's the policy I want to see. Here are the kind of laws I want to see enacted. And the Democrat would stand up and say, well, I have a different set of policies, and here's what I want to pursue and how I want to pursue it. But they would both be saying they want to end up in the same place. More freedom. More protection for our children. The greatness of America. More freedom for people to worship according to their beliefs, as our founders said we have to have the right to do. And on and on. In other words, a shared set of values, a shared vision of America a shared respect for human life and freedom. So in other words, you have people disagreeing about policies but agreeing on principles. And it's fine for people who embrace the same principles to have disagreements about how we best implement, protect, and foster them. Not that way anymore. The level of disagreement now is at the level of principle. It is not about whether what is the best policy to defend human life. It's about whether human life is worth defending. Or maybe sometimes there's a right to kill a human life. You know how many people who, again, I mentioned in that, in that speech to uh, Ralph Reed's conference, the extremism of the Democrats on abortion, you know how many of them will actually come out and say, oh yeah, I admit that this is the taking of a human life. I know that this is killing a baby. Everybody knows that. I just think that sometimes that's okay. There's no longer any, any common embrace of the principle that life should always be defended and protected, never be deliberately taken. There's no agreement on that anymore. Nor is there even agreement on the existence of objective truth. You know, we talk about critical race theory and so forth in this nation. Critical race theory is based on critical theory, a, a more broad theory that completely denies the existence 
of objective truth. We've got to realize how serious this situation is. That's why you hear people say on the left saying ridiculous things like, oh, well, mathematics is racist. You heard them say that, right? Mathematics is racist. No wonder they don't want to teach the kids math anymore. It's racist. What's racist about it? Well, you know, it's because it implies that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And, you know, that's just an expression of, yeah, that's just an expression of white supremacy. You know, there's a right and wrong category. And, you know, we don't want to force people into those boxes or make them feel bad that they got the wrong answer to something. You know what I think we ought to do? We need to apologize to all the people who have ever been on one of those game shows and have lost. No, no, I got, I got five of the answers right. Okay, now you answer this sixth question right, you're going to get $20,000. You've all seen the game shows. I visit my mom, she often watches them. $20,000, it's just one answer away. you got ten seconds to get the right answer, and the person says the answer, and the buzzer goes off. Wrong. You're oh, so sorry, you could have had $20,000. These people should rise up, brothers and sisters. They should rise up and say, no, you're racist. Give me the $20,000. There is no such thing as a right answer or a wrong answer. Why do we pay people to get the right answer if there's no such thing as objective truth? This is a battle between common sense and insanity. Now, people are attacking the truth. They're attacking human life. They're attacking freedom. They're rewriting the history of America. They're destroying our border, destroying our economy, destroying our, our position in the world stage, destroying the respect that other nations of the world have rightly had for America for so long. They're destroying the freedom of the church. And then we have our fellow citizens who say to us, and this is one of the key points I want to make today, so many of our fellow citizens some of whom are in public office, some of whom are speaking quite loudly into the political arena and into the elections, who will say, look, this, this, we, we've got to get back to normal here. There, there, there's too much fighting. There's too much uh, uh, division. Uh, it, it, this is just not normal. There's too much warfare going on here. We've got to get back to some sense of normalcy in America. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you share the conviction that there's only one path back to normalcy in America. There's only one path back to the kind of peaceful coexistence and life in America where we can live and pursue happiness. There's one path right now back to the kind of normalcy that we all long for. And you know what it is? Victory! That's the path back to normalcy, to, to confront these people who are attacking life and attacking truth and attacking America, some of them in the name of America, attacking America, and to defeat them. To get them out of power, completely out of power, and to reclaim our nation. To a nation that truly is based on the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The way our founders have always understood them, not the way that some leftist lunatic wants to redefine them. There is only one path back, and that is victory. Because only one side in this division can possibly win. You cannot have a society coexisting right now 
when these fundamental disagreements go so deep on the level of foundational principles. And so we have to, and that's why we're all here, we have to commit ourselves to work as never before, to rally our fellow citizens and to say, look, the battle is different now. No more room for neutrality. We've got to rally the, the religious leaders too. You know, for so many of them, they want to be, they want to be above the fray. Oh, well, well, yeah, no, we're not political. Now listen, there's a certain truth here that the church, and then defined broadly, the body of Christ in the world, isn't a political party. It's not meant to be. Jesus didn't come to found a political party. He came to, to, to bear witness to the kingdom of God. And his church is the kingdom of God taking root in the world and bringing people to salvation, right? We all know this from our, from our faith. We don't stand ultimately as Christians on the platform of the Republican Party or of the Democrat Party. We stand on the platform of Jesus Christ. But when that platform is attacked by a political party, faithfulness to Christ demands that we defend it and that we point out who the enemy is. So when the church stands up in the midst of the situation we have now, and says to the to the Democrat Party, you can't you can't redefine marriage, you can't redefine the family, you can't define out of existence a human baby. You can't do that. You can't suppress the freedom of the church. When the church stands up and calls out by name the party that is fostering these evils, that's not the church being political. That's the church being the church. That's the church being faithful to the very truths that Jesus Christ has, has, has established as our foundation. So no more room for this, this kind of, oh I'm, oh, I'm above the fray. You think you're above the fray and therefore you're not going to get involved in the political battle? Then you're going to lose everything that you cherish. Simple as that. You're going to lose your children, you're going to lose your country. We know this. We have to sound the alarm Especially when we see an unprecedented, and brothers and sisters, we're talking about the spiritual battle between good and evil here, between an acceptance of God's truth or the myth that we can create our own. But it translates politically into an unprecedented constitutional crisis that we are fast on the track to experiencing here in the next year. Mark my words, and I'm sure so many of you are as convinced of this as I am and many others are. The next 14 months, we are going to see an insanity. We are going to see a level of attack in America. We are going to see things done and attempted that we have never imagined before. This We, we have to fasten our seatbelts. We have to be spiritually strong. We've got to be strongly connected and united with one another because we are going to need every single one of us. This is going to be a rough 14 months. I am convinced we are going to see absolutely unprecedented efforts to take this country completely away from us, to take our freedom completely away from us. We're not just seeing political divisions here. We are seeing a reassertion of tyranny. Now, we have a primary process I have, and you have, I am sure, the utmost respect for the primary process in our elections and the utmost respect for those among us who will have different preferences for candidates and whatnot. Absolutely. And let that process unfold the way that it's supposed to unfold. 
But it's the enemy against all of us that we've got to put even more focus on. Whatever one's candidate preferences are, and whether this were being done to the Republican Party or to the Democrat Party, when we see what's going on today, we have to recognize this is not America. We do not do what the Marxists do. We do not target our political opponents and try to deprive the American people from making the choice as to whether or not they're going to be our president or our nominee. We don't do that in America. We let the people decide. We don't try to bring prosecution and prison to our political opponents. We leave that, you know what? We leave that to the communists. We leave that to the banana republics. We leave that to the Marxists. We don't do that. And we have never done that in America. And now we see it. If people can't see this, we've got to take them by the shoulders and shake them and wake them up and say, you've got to pay attention right now to what's going on here. Because this is not America. This is not about, oh, nobody's above the law. This is about you're not you're respecting the law, you're making it up. These, these Democrat prosecutors, Soros-backed prosecutors, they don't have any concern about the law. They're not applying the law. They're taking political hatred and pretending that they're de defending the law. And this, brothers and sisters, this is leading us to a moment where the American people have to make a choice, not between one candidate or another, but between one country and another. Are we or are we not going to stay on the track as Americans? Now, one of the elements of all of this, when you see the people in power on the other side who have absolutely no respect for law, due process, or America herself, that goes hand in hand with the fundamental issue that, that, that shapes my work, which is the respect for life. It goes hand in hand with a rejection of the right to life, which as I mentioned in the short clip that you saw there, without life we don't have any other right. Now we've lived in the last year through a, 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 a monumental shift in our, in our nation's policy on abortion, where we don't have Roe v. Wade anymore. And what, you know, if you have followed this movement and this issue at all over the years, you know that what Roe did was to take away from the American people the right to make their convictions into law when it comes to abortion policy. In other words, in states where the people persuade their lawmakers to pass laws that will limit abortion or give more protection to the unborn. That has happened, and governors have signed off on such laws. But under the regime of Roe v. Wade, the courts have taken as a default position to strike down those laws. Why? Because of the idea that there is some constitutional right to abortion. Now, where in American history, in what state, in what law, by what court decision, either of a federal or state court, or in what scholarly article throughout our history, has it ever been asserted prior to the time of Roe v. Wade, all right, which the engines got started in the late 60s, but prior to that, where in our entire American judicial or legislative landscape or scholarly landscape has there been the assertion 
that there's some kind of constitutional right to an abortion? And the answer is nowhere. It's just not there. This is not a moral statement about abortion. This is an historical analysis. There was never any such right even asserted. And this was the fundamental argument in the Dobbs decision. The Supreme Court looked at the historical landscape. Because from the time of Roe, from the almost 50 years from Roe to Dobbs, the court never squarely faced this question, strange as it might sound. The Supreme Court ruled dozens of times on abortion, and other courts ruled hundreds of times on this issue over the last 50 years. But never in any of those cases was the question squarely faced, does in fact our federal constitution contain a right to abortion? When the court faced the question squarely, they said, well, of course not. It's nowhere there in the history. We know it's not in the text of the Constitution. So if you're going to assert a right that's constitutional, but it's not in the text, you have to be able to find it in the history. That's how constitutional analysis works in America. Uh, it's not there. And so the court said, well, look, whatever the public reaction is going to be, the fact of the matter is there's no reason why if the people of a given state want to secure legal protection for children in the womb, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do that. And if they can persuade their fellow citizens that, well, not total protection, but, you know, start protecting, you know, okay, give the woman a right to choose an abortion, but, you know, three months should be enough time. If after three months she doesn't, uh, you know, then you say, okay, time is up to make a choice. Just like you would say, well, okay, once the child is born, the time is up to make a choice. But people on the other side don't even want to draw the line there. You know that back in January, the uh, Republican House finally passed a law saying that if a baby is born alive after a failed abortion, there should be protections for that child. And the Democrats have completely opposed that. Wait a minute. Increasing protections for a baby who's outside the mother's body? You don't want to protect that? No, they don't want to. This is like what... Again, battle is between common sense and insanity, between good and evil. And brothers and sisters, the people in America, through their elected representatives, have the right to decide on policy. And what Dobbs, all that Dobbs did was to put the abortion issue back in that same category where all the other uh, policy decisions rest or should rest. And now we battle it out. Now we, we persuade, right? The other side is trying to get Florida to be a state where a constitutional right to abortion is asserted within our constitution, our state constitution. So what they lost at the federal level, now they're trying to insert into the state level. But you know what? The, the, the answer to the question is still the same. When in the history of Florida, has a, has, when in the history of the Florida constitution has a right to abortion ever been asserted? Never. It's not there. When in the legislative history? When? Where? How? By whom? Nowhere. So they're trying to invent a fake right and impose it on the rest of us because putting something in the Constitution short circuits what? The legislative process. Now people can't change the law, pass a law. It, 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 it sets it in stone. On the basis of what? A sound bite? 
You want to debate abortion? Then do it the robust way. Have legislative hearings. Bring in witnesses. Bring forth documentation. Have arguments back and forth. Uh, Introduce amendments. Test it out. And if you don't like the way the law is working, go back and change it the following session. Isn't that how this is supposed to work? We're not supposed to be hogtied by fake dogmas coming down and limiting our ability to govern ourselves. That's what this is about. So, two things going into the election. Just like I said, we have some people who, they're afraid of the fight. Oh, oh no, we just need peace and normalcy. No, there's not going to be any peace and normalcy in America until we defeat these Democrats, defeat the radical left, get them the hell out of power, and off and out of off the landscape. You want to be Americans? You, you, you want to be Americans? Be Americans. Don't be tyrants disguising as Americans. So that's number one. Don't, don't let people give us this false, you know, oh, you know, we're above the fray, peace and flowers. But then secondly, the second main point that I'm getting to here is simply this, and I'll conclude, we'll have some questions. On the abortion issue, friends, there are two things that if we can properly articulate these two points... This will be a winning issue. It won't be a liability politically. And the two points are very simply this. Number one, as I've already done, expose the extremism of the Democrats on this topic. They don't want any limits on abortion. They have already introduced and voted on multiple times in Congress a bill that would take away from all the states even the most reasonable limitations on abortion, even parental involvement in the abortions uh, sought by minor age girls. Point out, study about their extremism, point it out, and challenge them. You're running for office, you got your, the Democrat opponent, challenge them. You tell, just please tell me, what limits would you put on abortion? Believe me, they are out of touch with where the American people are and always have been. But the second point, and I'll conclude with this our movement, our movement, the pro life movement, And the position of the Republican Party on abortion is the compassionate position. We are just as much concerned for that mom, dad, and family as we are concerned for the baby. Because our position is equality. The other side likes to invoke equality while they're destroying it. Our position is actually securing equality. That's a child. But so the, the mom and the dad, they're of equal dignity too. So what do we do? So many of the laws you know, that the other side will condemn as these anti-choice, you know, you're oppressing the rights of women uh, 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 laws, pro-life laws. So many of these laws, while protecting the child, are also providing funding for alternatives to abortion. I was just... Last week, as Diane said in her introduction to me, I travel to several states a week in this pro-life mission, been doing that for 30 years. Last week I was in Mobile, Alabama, with 1,600 directors, staff, medical personnel who are running the thousands of pregnancy centers across our country. Do you know that the pregnancy centers outnumber the abortion clinics by about four to one? And that every day... Every day, moms who are in despair, dads who are afraid, grandparents who are confused, are coming to these centers and saying, help us. 
We know abortion is wrong, but we really don't know what to do. You know, it's not freedom of choice that brings somebody to the door of an abortion clinic. It's the feeling that you have no freedom and no choice. Believe me, we know the stories. We walk with these women. We help them. And the dads, too. They're not evil people. These are people who need our help. They need our compassion. They need to be shown that they can do what they already know is right. So... These bills are funding the, the pregnancy centers. I, I was with these people this past week, as I, as I always am. There's various conferences every year that I'm always there for, and I speak at them, and I help these folks. Friends, make it clear in your own political battles, in your own advocacy, in your own one-on-one conversations with the people you have to persuade, make it clear. Our stance is the compassionate stance. We understand the problems that lead a poor person to, 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 to say they want to have an abortion. We know how to give them better alternatives. We will walk with them. We, and, and part of our ministry is called Silent No More because we know the other side of the coin too. As some of you may know from personal experience, that if you have an abortion, that's not the end of the story. It may have solved your immediate problem. What am I going to do about this pregnancy? But friends, it doesn't end there. You have an abortion, you suffer. You suffer. You suffer grief. You may suffer physical complications. You suffer relationship collapses. You suffer insecurity and low self-esteem. I can, for, we have an entire movement of people who have had abortions. It's called Silent No More. Look it up at silentnomore.com. And they share their stories publicly. Let's bring these stories into the political debate. And let them speak for themselves. I had an abortion. Let me tell you what it's like. Let those voices come forward. And that'll help to show our nation that, yeah, we are the compassionate ones. When we say we don't want abortion, it's not only because we want to protect the baby. We want to save that mom from a lifetime of grief and hurt and pain that maybe nobody told her about before. Our ministry, my friends, is at your service. We have the political work that we do. We broadcast every day. Endabortion.tv is our broadcast channel, and that links you to all, to all our social media on which you'll, you'll see programs every day, talks from me. I have a nightly program. How many know Right Side Broadcasting Network, RSBN? Uh, I have a nightly program on there called Praying for America uh, that I am sure you would really enjoy. Uh, I want to invite you to connect with our ministry. The broadcasting, the political work, ProLifeVote.com is our uh, election website. We've got uh, speakers. Alveda King works on our team, Anissa Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, we have uh, so many resources for churches. Uh, and uh, we've put on your table a yellow card. If you think we can help you or you want to receive more of our information, let me know who you are. I know many of you have been in touch with us actually for, for many years. But you can fill out these yellow cards if you want me to uh, stay in touch with you. And then, of course, this a little prayer card. We have all kinds of prayer campaigns. And this is a card I want to leave with you for a prayer for uh, our national elections as well. So, Diane, thank you very much. We'll take some questions. Brothers and sisters, let's go forward, defend life, and save America. So, how do you... I've, I've had a conversation in the League of Women Voters with some Democrats, and they say, you're not compassionate because 
you're making this woman have a baby that's sick, and you know she did the baby sick because of the imaging that we have now. Yes. So she's going to be burdened for her life. What, so how do you... Uh, well, I would ask them, how, how, first of all, how do they know that? We have, um, and this is where the power of testimony comes in, the people who have experienced uh, children with various conditions or handicaps uh, who make a journey of love. It, it, it's the power of love. Don't, don't they, I would say to a person like that, don't you, don't you believe in the power of love? Have you never met a mother of a disabled child or, or, or of a severely disabled child? You, you, don't you know that, that that's number one? Number two, the pro-life movement can make this promise. If you truly feel, and we respect the judgment of people that say, hey, you know what, I really can't handle a disabled child. You know what, I respect that. We will take that child. You give birth to that child, I guarantee you. We have people across America who want to raise that child no matter how. Severely deformed, drug addicted, you name it. We will take that child. But here's the third and perhaps most powerful response. Suppose they don't know that the child is disabled until the child is born. I mean, because sometimes you just don't. Maybe they didn't get, they couldn't get the prenatal test, or uh, you just don't know, right? Or some problem develops late in pregnancy. There you are, ready to welcome the birth of your child, and all of a sudden the doctor comes over to you or the nurse and says, I'm sorry to tell you, your, your child is, is just not, norm, not healthy, and here's the problem, A, B, or C, whatever it might be. Uh, if you want, we can, just, we, can just we can just chop the head off right now. Would that Democrat friend of yours, or would any of them, say, dare to say, oh yeah, sure, well, why not? You want, use the same argument. She is going to have a lifetime of pain and grief, and this is terrible. We shouldn't impose this on her. We can't force her to be a mother of this guy. Right? Hey, listen, we can solve that right away. I've got some sharp instruments. We're just going to kill this child right now. Sorry that this happened, but we can't subject you to a life of pain. Kill the child! And I ask for those who would, you know, react in horror to that, what in the world is the difference? Tell me what the difference is. We know full well that no matter how disabled this baby is, that's a baby. If you can kill that baby in the womb, why can't you kill the baby outside the womb? And if you can't kill the baby outside the womb, well, then why in the world can you kill the baby inside the womb? And that's our response. Yeah. But it's the compassion, though. We're not going to leave that mother alone in her situation. We're going to help her. Other questions? Sure. Um, before I left New England in 2016, they were passing a bill um, in New York and Boston and Rhode Island about having abortion up to three years old. Is that true? There have been... This relates to... Uh, the point I made about um, what happens if a baby survives abortion, because sometimes they, they do, especially the later-term abortions. If you know how these later-term abortions are done, they're essentially a delivery process, okay? And the baby may be injected in the heart uh, with a poison or um, uh, other methods taken to, to, to end the life before delivery. Sometimes they survive. So then the question becomes, well, what do you do? That baby's on the table now, still breathing. What do you do? And um, in some states, 
um, the laws are there to protect them and others they aren't. It's just an inconsistent picture across the country. And therefore, the Republicans have introduced various kinds of legislation on the state and federal level to say, well, let's give, let's make sure that even if it's the, the doctor who was just trying to end that life, that if they're born alive, they will uh, preserve that life. Uh, and, uh, and, and as I say, the Democrats have consistently opposed that kind of legislation. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect where you're saying oh, up until two or three years old, there have been medical articles advocating for that. Uh, Peter Singer, the ethicist, quote-unquote, uh, has said very explicitly, and this kind of builds on my last comment, he said there's only, there's only two positions you can take to be consistent. And he said either oppose abortion or endorse infanticide. Because his argument was there can't be that the physical process of coming down the birth canal and out of the mother's body can't be so morally definitive as to change a non-person into a person. That's a person. That's a human baby, both before and after that journey down the birth canal. So he said, if you believe that choice prevails over life, if you believe that circumstances can justify killing a baby, well, then you, you've got to say that you're in favor of, you would be in favor of doing that in the first two, three years. Or, you know, or sometimes the people on the other side will say, oh, well, you have to wait until the baby is fully developed. Do you know when the brain, the human brain, is fully developed? In your mid, early to mid-20s. So it's like, don't talk about being fully developed, you know, in order to have the right to life. So that's what, it wasn't exactly a law that would allow it to three years, but it has been an argument uh, on the other side. Yeah. The sea turtles. Yeah, the sea, yeah. But not the lives that are... That's right, that's right. Well, I, you know, I'm originally from New York. Six years ago, and I started traveling the country 30 years ago, coming off into Florida. Some of you encountered me previously. Uh, uh, Father, I spoke at Father Tim's Parish in Marco Island years and years ago. Uh, and I always loved Florida. One of my first trips, and then six years ago, I had the, the smarts to move down here. Okay, so we relocated our whole ministry to Titusville. By the way, if any of you are ever over by that way, the door is open. You're free, free, feel free to visit us. Uh, impertinent to what you just said, one of my first uh, uh, parish uh, uh, preaching visits to Florida was at a church near, right, right on the beach. And after the, the services, I went over to the beach, and there I saw a big sign that said, do not touch the sea turtles or their eggs. They are protected by local, state, and federal law. So I took a picture of that sign. And, and ever since then, I've been bringing that up in my pro-life sermons and pro-life talks and broadcasts. You know, I had subsequently, uh, this is not the only time it happened, I had a, a woman come up to me after one of my uh, sermons. And she said this. She said, Father Frank, I came into this church today completely pro-abortion. She didn't even say pro-choice. She said pro-abortion. And now I've completely changed my view. I'm 100% pro-life. And I said, really? I said, what, what was it that changed your mind? The sea turtles. The sea turtles. Use that example. Especially here in Florida, people know exactly what you're talking about. 
You know, don't shine those lights on the beach. You know, use the example and ask them. In the way I ask it in my in my talks, I, I simply raise again. Very, you know. By the way, you know, we can be really, you know, we got to fight politically, as I was saying in my talk. But uh, we have the utmost respect, and we have to show the utmost respect to our fellow citizens who wrestle with this issue of abortion. And I can assure you, we have the utmost respect for it because we know what that wrestling is about. I mean, the people who are just out there, you know, like Biden and Pelosi, you know, unrestricted abortion, and by the way, you have to pay for it, you know, no respect for that position. But, you know, people honestly wrestle with this. And so I ask it just in a simple way. Says, so you know what? If, if we can't, if we're not allowed to, to smash the egg of a sea turtle, why should we be permitted to smash a baby? And, you know, and you just ask it in that very humble, respectful way. It convinces people. Yes. Yes, it's not supposed to happen. It's not, there are various federal laws that, that prohibit the use of federal dollars for abortion. It's complicated because, as you know, there are many different funding streams, but there is a lot of protection in place. However, this administration is trying to say, trying to get around it in various ways. And what they're saying now is, oh, well, you know, you might be in a state where uh, they've passed these, you know, laws prohibiting abortion. So we'll pay for you to go to a, a state where it's legal. We'll pay, you know. And I think this might Raise of ultimately, I don't know if there's uh, uh, how many attorneys or, or, or constitutional folks there are here in the room, uh, legal experts, but I think this may raise equal protection issues down the line. You know, you're an employee, an employee or you're in the military or whatnot. Oh, you're told that, okay, you want an abortion, we're going we're gonna to pay you for you to travel across straight lines. Okay, what if I have some kind of other medical condition that I can't get treatment for in this particular state? Are you going to help me with that too? Or are you discriminating against cancer patients? Are you discriminating against people who have lung disease? Or whatever, right? I mean, it could raise those kind of questions. But that's, that's one of the ways that they're trying to... Uh, ultimately, it ends up being a payment for abortion. Is there anything stopping you from running for political office? Ah, no, there's not. <laughs> there used to be, but no, there's not. If nothing more, it would create a spectacle. You know what? That's right. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, I mean, many of you know what, what happened to me uh, you know, last year. I, I've been leading this ministry for 30 years. It's the largest ministry in the Catholic community that is focused on ending abortion. But for 21 years, some of some religious leaders have been, you know, not too comfortable with um, what I've been saying and doing, the focus we've been putting on abortion and the obvious political uh, message that we have. And um, so they said, oh, you can't be a priest anymore. If you're not going to change, you can't be a priest anymore. You don't want to settle down. You don't want to stop being political. Um, but, yeah, if I took that step, that would, that would really uh, make their heads spin, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> I am free now. Oh, yes, absolutely. A priest cannot run for office, but a layperson can, yes. <laughs> well, you've started with well, your question, you know, and, and you know, David Barton, I don't know how many of you know wall builders, David is a friend of mine, we've worked together for many years, and he's often pointed out, he says, you know, the kind of political leaders we need are not the ones that put themselves forward, it's the ones that the people have to convince to run, because then you know they're not in it for ambition or power, you know, but people know that the people need to see the gifts and, be, and come to the conclusion, hey, you know what, this person can help us. 
Because that's what public office is all about, right? Serving the people, not the other way around. So, but thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I am, uh, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I'm the servant of the Lord. So, uh, <laughs> thanks again, Diana. Thank, listen, keep in touch, please. Endabortion.us is our website. Love to hear from you. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you out on the road. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.